The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, at number six in our countdown, The Extended Mind, The Power of Thinking Outside Your Brain by Annie Murphy-Paul. Can you think outside of your body? Can your senses, your surroundings, and other people make you smarter? Keeping up with the cognitive demands of modern life has pushed our brains to their limits. But if the world around us won't change, then we have to. We have to learn how to think more expansively. And to do that, according to science writer Annie Murphy-Paul, we need to stop being so brain-bound. That's the rather bold claim she makes in her new book, The Extended Mind. Annie says we can actually get smarter by getting out of our heads. We can outsource our memories to our phones, make decisions based on our bodily sensations, use tactile tools to solve abstract problems, draw inspiration from our surroundings, and argue with others as a way to improve our own thinking. Here's Annie. I'm Annie Murphy-Paul, author of The Extended Mind, The Power of Thinking Outside the Brain. I'm a journalist who covers psychology and cognitive science, but my latest book is also a foray into philosophy. Philosophy is where the first big idea in my book comes from. And that idea is thinking doesn't happen only in the brain. More than 20 years ago, two philosophers, Andy Clark and David Chalmers, wrote a journal article that opened with a question, where does the mind stop and the rest of the world begin? Now that question would seem to have an obvious answer, right? The mind stops at the head, it's contained within the skull. But Clark and Chalmers maintained that this assumption, as common as it is, is just wrong. The mind, they said, takes elements from outside the head and draws them into the thinking process. These mental extensions allow us to think in ways our brains couldn't manage on their own. They called this phenomenon the extended mind. In that early article, their main example of an outside-the-brain resource was the humble notebook. If you have a notebook that is pretty reliably within arm's reach, if you use it to make lists and brainstorm ideas and maybe draw a sketch or a diagram of something you're thinking about, then that notebook, they claimed, has become an integral part of your thinking process, even a part of your mind. And at first, the theory of the extended mind was greeted with a lot of skepticism and even some derision. It seemed really out there, really wacky. But that started to change once the smartphone arrived on the scene. This is a device that, in a sense, is specifically designed to extend our minds to take over some of our mental functions, like remembering phone numbers and alerting us to appointments and calculating a tip at a restaurant. And they're pretty much always with us, ready to be incorporated into our thinking. Another philosopher, Ned Block, has said that the extended mind thesis was false when it was written, but subsequently became true, like maybe in 2007 when Apple introduced the first iPhone. In fact, we don't only extend our minds with our tools and technologies. And that's the second big idea from the extended mind that I want to tell you about. We extend the mind with the body. We here in the West are used to thinking of the mind and the body as separate, 
we're used to thinking of the mind localized in the brain as the place where thinking happens. But a burgeoning field called embodied cognition is demonstrating that thinking is actually a full body experience. And this is true in a few different ways. First, the internal sensations of the body are gut feelings. They guide our perceptions and our reactions. When we learn to tune into these inner signals, we can use them to make sounder decisions and even to connect more effectively with other people. Second, the movements our bodies make affect the way we think. We tend to believe that serious thinking involves sitting still, but research shows that moving, walking, exercising, acting things out, that enhances our mental processes in ways that don't happen when we're sitting down. Third, a specific kind of movement, the gestures we make with our hands, extend our thinking by capturing and expressing concepts that we can't yet put into words. Research shows that our most advanced ideas are cutting edge ideas. They often show up first in the motions of our hands. And then we use those motions to inform and construct the verbal account of what we're thinking. So we extend our minds with our bodies and we can also extend our minds with physical space which is the third big idea for my book. It's common in our culture to compare the brain to a computer, but this is actually a deeply flawed analogy. You can think about it this way. A laptop operates exactly the same way, whether it's open on a desk in an office or whether it's on a bench in a park. It works the same way, whether it's set next to a sunny window or whether it's being used in a dark, dank basement. But Human brains aren't like that. They're exquisitely sensitive to context, to place. And one of the most fertile and fruitful places to think with is nature, the outdoors. And that's because over eons of evolution, our brains were tuned to the kind of sensory information that's available in the natural world. Spending time in the hard-edged, highly designed, built environment drains our mental resources. And spending time in nature actually replenishes them. But we can also deliberately arrange the interior spaces we occupy in ways that extend our thinking. Research shows that it's especially important that we feel a sense of control, a sense of ownership over the space in which we do our learning or working. It's also important to incorporate into these spaces cues of identity, that is, objects or symbols of who you are, what you're doing in that space, what your role there is, and also cues of belonging, objects or symbols that represent your membership in a group that's meaningful to you. In the extended mind, I also write about making use of what I call the space of ideas. And this refers to the process of getting information out of our heads and into physical space whether that space is a sketch pad or a whiteboard or a set of post-it notes or even a physical model that you're interacting with. And this kind of offloading, as cognitive scientists call it, has several benefits for our thinking. One is that it relieves the burden of keeping that information in mind. Getting it out of our heads and onto paper or another physical surface frees up mental resources for higher order thinking about that material. Another benefit of offloading is that you can then inspect that information with your senses. You can see how it looks, you can read it aloud and hear how it sounds. 
you're granted what one psychologist calls the detachment gain. That is, you put a little space between yourself and your thoughts, and that resulting detachment allows you to think about your thoughts more intelligently. In our brain-centric culture, we tend to do far too much in our heads when actually we'd be thinking more effectively and more efficiently if we moved our mental contents out of our heads more often. There's one more way that outside the brain resources can extend our thinking, and that's the fourth big idea from my book. We can extend our minds with the social interactions we have with other people. So often we assume that real thinking, serious thinking, is done alone. You know, someone bent over a book alone in a room. But in fact, humans think best when they're interacting socially with others. So social activities like debating, storytelling, teaching, these activate mental processes that remain dormant when we're by ourselves. In fact, when we structure our interactions with others in the right way, we can actually engage a kind of group mind, a collective entity that is more intelligent than any one of its members. I'll give you an example of that. There's a process that psychologists call transactive memory, which refers to the fact that members of a group each have their own specialty, the area in which they are an expert. I'll give you an example of that. There's a process that psychologists call transactive memory, which refers to the fact that members of a group each have their own specialty, the area in which they are an expert. No one can know or remember everything, obviously, but if you keep track of what others know, you can effectively multiply your access to a wealth of knowledge that would be too voluminous to be held inside any one person's head. All these points contribute to a really surprising realization, which brings us to the fifth big idea from my book. And that is that the naked brain, the unextended brain, is really not that powerful. We hear a lot about how amazing the brain is, how extraordinary it is, but the lesser known scientific story from the last 20 years or so is how much researchers have learned about the brain's limits. And these limits are not a matter of individual differences in intelligence. They're common to all our brains. They're a product of the brain's status as a biological organ, one that evolved to do things that are very different from what we ask of it in our complex, knowledge-centric, modern world. Drawing on the resources of the extended mind allows the biological brain to overachieve, to do more than would be possible on its own. And in fact, we can think of the experts among us as those people who have mastered the art of thinking outside the brain. Research shows that these top performers, they don't do it all in their heads. They achieve their superior results by integrating internal and external resources. Studies find that they are more apt than novices to make skillful use of their bodies, of physical space, of relationships with others, and this perspective has real implications for how we understand and cultivate superior performance. If experts are less likely to use their heads and more inclined to extend their minds, then that's a habit the rest of us can learn to emulate on our own way to achieving mastery. Thinking outside the brain is not a skill we've traditionally been taught at school or work. The capacities we develop and the techniques that we're taught they're those that involve using our heads, like committing information to memory, engaging in internal reasoning and deliberation, 
endeavoring to self-discipline and self-motivate. And meanwhile, there's no corresponding cultivation of our ability to think outside the brain. We don't get instruction, for instance, in how to tune into the body's internal signals, how to tune into those sensations that can so profitably guide our choices and decisions. We're not trained to use bodily movements and gestures to understand highly conceptual subjects like science and mathematics, or to come up with novel and original ideas. Schools don't teach students how to restore their depleted attention with exposure to nature and the outdoors, or how to arrange their study spaces so that they extend intelligent thought. Teachers and managers don't demonstrate how abstract ideas can be turned into physical objects that can be manipulated and transformed in order to achieve insights and solve problems. Employees aren't shown how the social practices of, say, imitation and vicarious learning can shortcut the process of acquiring expertise. In classroom groups and workplace teams, they aren't coached in these scientifically validated methods of increasing the collective intelligence of their members. Our ability to think outside the brain has been left almost entirely uneducated and undeveloped. And this oversight is the regrettable result of what you could call our neurocentric bias. That is the way we idealize and even fetishize the brain. And so we develop these corresponding blind spots for all the ways that cognition extends beyond the skull. But if you look at it from another perspective, this kind of near universal neglect represents an amazing opportunity. It's a world of unrealized potential. When we intentionally cultivate the capacity to think outside the brain, a new world of possibility opens up. We gain access to reserves of intuition, memory, attention, motivation that aren't available to the naked brain. So this is the big idea I'd like to leave you with. In order to think the intelligent, informed, original thoughts we're capable of, we can't rely on the brain alone. We have to think outside the brain. That was Annie Murphy-Paul. She's appeared on this podcast not once, but twice to discuss the extended mind. I had a wonderful conversation with her, as did our curator, Adam Grant. You can find links to those interviews in our show notes. You'll also find a link to download the Next Big Idea app. It's loaded with hundreds of book bites from the world's leading thinkers. There is no better way to get smart fast. With book bites, you can read a book in the time it takes to take a COVID test. And you don't have to put anything up your nose. Search for Next Big Idea in your app store today. On our next episode, Adam Grant on the power of rethinking. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. Have a great weekend. 